every day we're making evaluations of things. We, we evaluate all day long. You know, we evaluate what food we're going to eat. Is it going to be healthy? Is it going to just taste good? Are we, uh, we evaluate what clothes we're going to wear. Are they dirty? Are they clean? Do they match my shoes? Do they go with my accessories? We evaluate, we become, all of us evaluate things we watch. We all become movie critics or food critics, restaurant critics, because we're always evaluating things. And we're always taking a look around and seeing what's going on around us. We evaluate uh, what we see on social media. We get together with our friends and go, did you see what so-and-so posted on social media? How ridiculous was that? How narcissistic is that? I don't, I, I don't get it, honestly. Hey, look at me and look what I did this weekend. Here's a selfie of me in, the, in wherever. I shouldn't pick on her, but my sister-in-law yesterday, we went for a little ride up to the Red Canyon, and she was taking pictures of Red Canyon. And then all of a sudden she realized she had it flipped backwards. She was taking pictures of herself. She's Canadian, okay, so give her a break. Things are backwards in the U.S., so we'll just give her a little bit of a break. But we love her. Well, we do that all the time. We evaluate things. We're evaluating. It's the process. We evaluate ourselves. We evaluate other people. We're always in the process of doing it. And, and the tendency that we have is to overinflate what we think of ourselves and deflate others. And it's just kind of like... Is that that's not the reality that is out there of who we really are. You know, it, it, the Bible calls this evaluation thing judgment, judging. Now, don't get wrong. I mean, you know, the most popular verse used to be John 3.16. Now it's Matthew 7.1, judge not lest you be judged. But you take that whole thing out of context, you can't go through life without judging things or judging other people. We are always do it. We're in the process of judging and creating and looking at stuff. And the problem is, is that, that we make these judgments uh, in, in what we see with limited information. For instance, if you saw someone that you knew coming out of a place that you thought they shouldn't be at, you would create a scenario in your mind why they're in there doing what they're doing and you already know what they've been doing and so you make a judgment off of what you've just seen. Limited information. Or you hear something about somebody that you go, ooh, that's really bad. And instead of going to that person and finding out more information to see if it's really true, you make a judgment on what you heard called gossip, which is sin. And, and that's where we get into trouble with our judgments. The issue that Paul raises with in our text that we're going to be looking at today in 1 Corinthians uh, is in regarding with the Corinthians church is the very same issue that we have to. We have to be aware of and deal with judgments, not only with in our culture, in our homes, in our business, but also within the church. And the issue derives from self-appointed authority, viewing oneself as the ultimate authority on every issue, failing to recognize that evaluating authority lies elsewhere and it's with the judge of all things the judge of what's happening in heaven and on earth the judge of the spiritual realm we try to take that authority away from him 
Our common experience of evaluation and judgment can be summed up this way. It's made with premature judgments by self-appointed authorities who possess limited knowledge of the situation and whose opinions hold no true weight. And yet we let their judgments rule our lives. Most of the time, we're making these evaluations or judgments. It's in a mode of observing people's performances. We really make judgment on performance, how they're doing. Are they meeting the expectations of the performance that we want to have for them? So we try to operate our lives at a high level of performance to prove to other people that we're worthy and that we're really productive and that we've got our poop in the group. That's, that's what we're trying to prove. We're always trying to prove something to somebody, whether it's our spouse or our children or our boss or our neighbors. We're always in that mode of performance, trying to perform. And the problem comes is that we, we want to go to this high level of performance. And, and in that high level of performance, then we want other people to see us doing what we think is at our highest peak. And the problem with that is we can't maintain that high level of performance. It's impossible. We are unable to perform at a high level all the time. And so we... We fail. And then we find ourselves in this, this cyclical movement of, of performing high, then flipping off and not doing so well. So now we're striving all the time to prove ourselves to other people. We're always grabbing for things, for more power, for more leverage, for more understanding. We really want to get out there and have a, have a view of, uh, have people have a view of us that's unrealistic. We, we're always looking around. And trying to perform. It's, it's a performance-based society that we live in. And the problem is, is that that performance is spilled into the church. And, and it, it's, it's not reality. And the other thing is, it's not from God and you won't find it in the Bible. So sadly, we end up paralyzed by other people's judgments of us. And then we look at what the Bible has to say and we go like, who can live up to that? So I'm just going to give up on doing that. On what God has said is, is success. Well, I can't live up to what God says it's success is. So what we're doing now is we're just dying for someone to wade in through all of our mess, all of our junk, and to accept us for who we really are. With no performance necessary. I don't care what you do, how you do it. I don't care who you're connected with. I just love you for who you are. Well, you know what the good news is? Someone's already waded through our junk, through our mess. Someone's already come in and gone through all of that stuff. And it says, quit trying to prove yourself. You're not impressing me because I love you the way that I created you. We kind of get messed up a little bit on that. You know, and the problem is, is that all of this performance-based stuff, all this stuff of trying to prove ourselves to other people, the continual performance of trying to, to get a good evaluation, the desire to have the favorable judgment from others, pushes us to extend ourselves unbelievably. We do it in the marketplace, in our homes, at school, in the church. And I'm telling you right now, I don't think there's anybody that's exempt from it. We all live in performance-based. Matter of fact, right now, you're evaluating me. Does this guy have anything to say this morning that's going to be of any value to me? 
does he ever wear shoes? Why doesn't he tuck his shirt in? Why doesn't he put a little color in that gray hair on his chin? There's the evaluation going on. And by the way, I'm evaluating you. Oh, don't like that so much, do you? I'm thinking to myself, is that guy really sleeping over there? Or is he just really listening with his eyes closed? Are they taking notes or are they drawing pictures? Do I have their attention? Do I need to be a little bit more funny so that they'll laugh? Or do I need to yell at them to wake them up? Is what I'm saying filled with the Spirit of God, representing Jesus, so much so that it has the opportunity to transform their lives? We do it. We evaluate. We judge. But here's the good news. All of this is really exhausting, by the way. I mean, we're worn out from it. We come home from work and we're just worn out because customers or employers or employees or whoever have been evaluating and judging us on our performance and now we're just exhausted from it and we come home and now our spouse is going to evaluate and judge our performance at home. Not where you think I'm going, in the kitchen. Okay? So are they going to cook a meal? Are they going to clean up the dishes? Are they going to help out putting the kids to bed? Are they going to mow the lawn? Do I have to carry the weight of the world of this house on my shoulders by myself? So there's this constant evaluation. And by the end of the day, we are absolutely exhausted from living in a culture that has high expectations of performance and doing all this stuff. So what are we to do? Where's the hope in all that? What do I Man, it just drains every ounce of joy out of us. And we wonder why we're crabby with each other at the end of the day. We're wondering, we, you know, what's going on? And so I want to give you a little bit of good news for you this morning. And it comes right from the mouth of, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are lab- labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, is that not what we want at the end of the day? Just a little bit of rest. A little reprieve from the exhaustion of living in this world. And that's, honestly, that's the starting place. Of, of being able to move out of living in a world of exhaustion, of being exhausted all the time. You know what, though? Here's, here's the good news that flows out of this. Is, uh, let me shorten this up for you so that you really get it. Is that God's grace is inexhaustible. That's the bottom line. It's a well that never goes dry. It's the, the, soul, the soul food that satisfies us every time we eat from it. And it replenishes us and it renews us and gives us the strength for today and tomorrow. So in in all of this, as you're thinking, how does this apply to 1 Corinthians? Well, in chapter 4, Paul has now just spent the first three chapters laboring to make this point clear that, that it's not performance. It's not on anything that we do, but it's only on the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And so we don't need to evaluate others according to who we're hanging. You know, he's talked about up in these first three chapters, he's talking about, well, you say you're following Apollos, and, and some of you like to follow Peter, even though he's never been to this church or ever preached here. You just heard he's old school. And some of you, because I planted the church, want to follow me, Paul. And, and, and he's saying, knock it off. There's only one person you need to follow, and that's Jesus. And that, that's the bottom line. So, so there's this judging and evaluating going on within the church body. And Paul's kind of going like, all right. So, so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to deal with that. And we're going to be in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to cover about 13 verses. So 12 o'clock or so, we'll be out of here. I'm kidding. All right, here we go. We're going to look at the first seven verses together. This is what it says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against me. But I am not thereby acquitted... It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce a judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, you may not catch uh, Paul's instruction about evaluating or judging in that first verse, but here's what it says. This is how you should regard us. In other words, when you start to think about what we're doing and who we are and how we're operating within the church, here's the parameters in which you should actually start looking at instead of maybe how eloquent we we present the word or how how great a knowledge we have of God's word or how we're able to come alongside people and love and care for them. That's not the measure by which you should be judging or evaluating how you regard us. it's, It's different than that. Because what Paul is saying is is that you regard us in, in the fact that we, and you make judgments in the fact that we are servants and stewards of the mystery of God. And, and the question I want us to con- consider is, who's a servant and steward of the mysteries of God? Well, it's everyone who's a Christ follower. We're all called to make disciples. Therefore, we all become servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. So what are the mysteries of God? Well, let me back that up and just go and say that that Peter, Paul's buddy, who's also doing uh, church planting and teaching and preaching, Peter confirms the, the whole idea that we are the servants and the stewards of these mysteries of God because he says this in, the, in his... Uh, First Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. Here it is, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You've been given this great opportunity. You've been in, entitled with, with the the, the the message of Jesus, 
You've got the title of royal priesthood, a chosen people by God. And because of that, because we are Christ followers, as disciple-making Christ followers, we are to step into those roles that God has, has given to us. We are to proclaim the brilliant, expect, exceptional attributes of God's grace and forgiveness and to lead those who don't know it into this awe-inspiring light of Jesus. The mysteries of God are that Jesus, fully God, fully man, came to earth, provided for us what we could not provide for ourselves, and make that provision available to all who would recognize their need for that provision. Then upon Jesus' departure from the earth back to heaven where he's at the right hand of the Father, God sends his Holy Spirit to empower those disciples And in that empowering them, he will guide them, counsel them, reveal the truth to them, comfort them, convict us of sin, and teach us to obey everything Jesus taught. Those are the mysteries of God. And those are the things that that we're called to, to take into our care. We're entrusted with them. And then we are to dispense those those gracious things that God has given to us to others. Now, here's here's a real Big deal. If you have a hard time being gracious with other people, it's a pretty good indicator that you haven't really experienced the fullness of God's grace in your life. You can't give away something that you've never gotten. And so Paul's really wanting us to understand how we are to look, regard, evaluate and judge others. It's as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mystery of God. But it's not just that. In verse 2, Paul says, Moreover, it require, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It's not a performance. God doesn't give us a list of duties to do and then judge us on how well we do those duties. It's not on how well we, we love our neighbor that makes our life a little bit miserable. It's not on how well we take care of our kids or our our spouses. It's not on how well we're kind to people in the grocery store that we don't know. God's not keeping a checklist of our performance. What he is simply saying is, is that it is found on our faithfulness to Jesus. That's it. It releases us from this whole performance-based mentality that we have got to prove ourselves in order to be liked and cared for and distinguished above other people. God's calling us out of that. In in verse 3, Paul makes the transition to the issue of judging. Look what it says there. But with me, and it's three and four, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I know I'd even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against me, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul's revealing his heart in these matters of being judged. In effect, he's saying it, it matters very little to me how much I am evaluated by you or any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment about myself. My conscience, as far as I know, is clear. But that doesn't prove I'm right because it's the Lord Jesus himself who will examine me and decide. Nobody else. Our problem is is that we care too much 
about what people think about us. But we don't care enough about what God thinks about us. We're more consumed with what others think than what God thinks. And, and, and so therefore, the pole of public opinion is often elevated to a higher area than what we think about, than what we know about God thinking about us. We care this much about what people think about us, and we care about that much about what God really thinks about us. And in that kind of a room, that space right there gets us into all kinds of trouble. Because now we're looking and we're thinking that, that it's what man says, what man decides, what man thinks that is truly important. But it's really not. It doesn't do anything for it. And by the way, this is an area that I struggle with too. I care what people think about me. I do. I want them to like me. And sometimes I care too much about what people think about me. And sometimes I don't think enough about how much God loves me, how much grace He has poured out to me, how much love He has expressed to me, all the blessings that He's poured into my life. I get consumed about what you guys think. You know, I don't know anybody that wakes up in the morning and goes like, well, today... I think I'm going to go out and just make everybody I run into not like me. I'm going to say some really rude and mean things. I'm going to act and behave very selfishly and conceited. I'm going to be arrogant and proud and rude. That's what my day is going to look like. We don't wake up thinking that way. We don't wake up stepping into those shoes. But unfortunately... Subconsciously, that's exactly what we do. We get out of bed and just by our behavior, our actions, the words we say, now we're pushing people away. And we're going like, how come nobody likes me? Well, it's because you're an idiot. That's Greek, by the way, just in case you didn't know. And God doesn't want us to be that way. The point that Paul is making for us is that we don't need to put stock into the judgments of others because it's Jesus who will have the final say about our lives. Look at verse verse 5 now. Therefore, do not pronounce a judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I mean, the bottom line is, who do you want a commendation from? When all the dust settles, who do you want accommodation from? You want one from your boss? Probably in 50 years, your boss is going to be dead or you'll be dead. And so your commendation from your boss isn't going to matter one little hoot. But getting an accommodation from God is going to be like an eternal thing. It's going to be one of those things where you're going like, man, you walk into, into heaven and Jesus comes up and gives you a high five. Man, how you doing? Hey, I want to introduce you to somebody. You're going, who? Who are you going to introduce me to? Paul? Peter? Barnabas? No, I'm going to introduce you to my dad. Your dad. And you go like, what? And so you go and you meet, you meet the father. And the father comes up and goes, man, you did such an awesome job with that little bit I gave to you. You took it and you grew it and you did what I wanted you to do with it. Welcome into the family house. Good job. Well done. Good and faithful servant. And we go like, my daddy likes me. He's proud of me. And you get to hear those words from him. 
Paul's saying that all of this that he's been talking about up in these first three chapters, everything up to this point, he is, he's not just laying out a theory for people to kind of get into their brain. It's not, and he's not a theorist, but he's living by it. He's, he's putting it into practice. That's why he says, I have applied all these things to myself. Application. You are now what? A practitioner, not a theorist. That's what God's calling us to do, becoming a practitioner of the ways of God. There are a lot of church-going people who knows what the Bible has to say. They're, they're, they have a great understanding of the Word of God. They can quote Scripture to you. They can tell you uh, some theology and doctrine. They might be able to distinguish some really deeper theological issues in their lives. And so they've got all of these this theory stuffed up into their head. But as you take a look at the fruit in their life, they're not practitioners of the theory. They're just theorists. They just, they just have all this stuff up in their head, and they go, this is what it's supposed to be like. And when you start to ask them about it, they go, don't tell me about that. I know what the Bible says. I just don't want to do it. Or here's the better side of a theorist. Well, I can see that you got in, into a bit of trouble in your life. you got sin in your life. Let me tell you what the Bible says you're supposed to do. A theorist is always great at pointing out your faults and the things that you should be doing, and they never apply them to their own hearts, their own lives, to start living by what God's called them to do. Paul doesn't just stop there. He also says, don't go beyond what is written. In other words, you know, don't just take, you read a little bit of God's truth and then try and make the, the jump from what God says to some crazy thought that you've got, and you're going to connect them together. You take God's word for what it says. You apply God's word exactly what it says to your life. You can't draw conclusions out of what's not being said. You can't add to God's word. The problem that we have is a lot of people see the wisdom of God, and they try to attach their wisdom to the wisdom of God, and the Bible says that that's foolishness or folly. You're, you're, all you're doing is, is, is getting this hodgepodge mix of, of wisdom and you've thrown a little sprinkle of God's wisdom in with your wisdom and you're trying to make it sound okay and that it's right and it's good. But in reality, it, it's contaminated. It's no good. All right. I'm going to gross you out now. Notice how I give you a fair warning about that. I'm going to gross you out. So of those that don't want to be grossed out, stick your fingers in your ear and go blah, 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 blah. Okay? What we do when we take God's wisdom, and if we just even take a little pinch of our wisdom that we think is true and we put it into it, it's like taking a jug of milk. Excuse me. And pouring, pouring a little vial of urine into the milk. You can't even tell that it's in there when you look at it. And then you're going to drink it. That's pretty disgusting, isn't it? You don't want that. Well, that's true spiritually speaking. When you start to add stuff to God's word that God never said, and you're making this stuff up, you have just contaminated God's word with your own faulty thinking. And the problem with all of that is, is that you start to really think you're something. He says, Paul says that he's done it for the benefit of the brothers, that you may not learn to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another against one another. 
He says, for, see, for who sees things different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? In other words, if you have anything from God, that's not coming. That's not your own wisdom. Now, you guys all know that I plagiarize. Right? Because I'm not that smart. So I steal stuff from other authors. I read stuff. I write it down. And I claim it as my own. I know this is being taped and it's going to go online, so I'll probably be arrested and won't be here next week. So I'm just confessing my sin to you. But that's, I'm stealing stuff from other people and I'm claiming it as my own. Because they're just men. What do they know anyway? But you can't claim something from God and claim it as your own. None of you said, Behold, the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus said that. So you can't claim it as your own. But on the other hand, you can't give something to somebody else of eternal value that you didn't receive from God. Paul says that in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. It's just as he's getting ready to talk about the Lord's table and the Lord's supper. He says, what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. We read that as we go through communion and we kind of blow right by it because we want to get to the bread and the wine because that's really the good part, right? We want to have a meal together. But, but the truth is, is what he says right there. What I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. In other words, if you've not received anything from the Lord, you've got nothing to pass on to anybody else that has eternal value or significance. It re- you really have nothing. You can give them, you can spew out all the wisdom of the philosophers of this world. You can talk about the, the smartest minds and the most brilliant men on this planet. And you can tell people the stuff that they know, but you know what it amounts to? Nothing. It, it's a hill of beans. It, it, it's dust in the wind. It, it's just here today and gone tomorrow. And, and so what we do is we, we settle ourselves into this, this manual for success in life called the Word of God. We start to read it so that when we bump into our other brothers and sisters in Christ, we can say, here's what God's been teaching me. Here's the knowledge I'm receiving from the word of God. And his spirit is, ma- is making it manifest in my life. And this is what it's looking like for me. And then somebody else hears what you say. And they go like, boop. And they go like, wow, I needed to hear that. And then they think about it. They meditate upon it. And they start to apply that truth from God's word to their life and it transforms their thinking and it changes their their path. Instead of going down this way, now they're following Jesus. And that's the big deal that Paul's talking about here. He says he wants us to know that we didn't receive anything from anybody except God. The stuff that is significant, the stuff that's going to change our lives, the things that's going to help our family, that's going to save my marriage, make my business better. It all comes from God and not Dave Ramsey. I probably should have used my inside voice on that. All right. Paul goes on in verses 8 through 13. He says, already already you have all you want. In other words, when we're in the kingdom of God, what do you have? What don't you have that you need? In God's kingdom, what don't you have that you, you need? You have grace. You have mercy. You have forgiveness. 
You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. You've been given um, a purpose in life. Go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey everything. That, that's Jesus' stump, stump speech to us. Here, You want to know what you're supposed to do with your life? Those are the three things right there. You spend the rest of your life doing that. When you get to heaven, your dad's going to give you a commendation. Okay? So, and he says, you've already become rich. Jesus said, I'm going to a place that you can't come to right now. I'm preparing a place for you to be at. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a room, ready a room for you in heaven. And then when you come up there, we're going to have this. When I come back and gather all of your brothers and sisters, we're going to sit down at the banquet table. And you remember that wine that I made at that wedding in Cana? The wine we're going to have at the banquet table is going to be superior to that. We're going to have the finest of choice meats. We're going to have the best cheese. We're going to have the best bread, and it won't be gluten-free because I will heal you from that. <laughs> that that's, that's the riches we already have. And, and, then, and then he goes on to say, without us, you have become kings. In other words, King Jesus is the one that crowns us. And, and would you, and would that you did reign. In other words, you're a royal priesthood. You're already reigning here on earth the way that God wants you to do. So you need to step up and do it so that we might share in the rule with you. But he goes on now and he, it, Paul takes this little twist and everybody's going like, oh man, this feels so good. Paul's really giving it to us and we're happy. And then he goes on in verse 9 and he says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Now he's getting a little bit sarcastic with them. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. We rev when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. All of a sudden, the happy-go-lucky feeling that you just had 30 seconds ago, Paul's going like, all right, now let me bring you to reality. Let me tell you what it's like to, to be a disciple. Now, I, I want you to get the picture here. Paul is he's not, he's not complaining about the mission that God has given to him. He's not saying that, you know, you need to walk in my sandals. If you really want to know what it means to be an apostle, walk in my sandals. Come and go through the stuff I've had to deal with. I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I've been whipped, I've been everything you can think of. I've had plenty, I've had less. I've been starving, I've been feasting. I, I've been at the top of the mountain with the royalties. I've been in the, in the gutter with the, the beggars of the world. He, he, he's, he's not saying we need to walk in his sandals. He's not saying, woe is me, my, my life sucks, so come and join me and let your life suck too. That is not what he is saying. He's got something more profound to say than that. This is something deeper than what we first see when we first read it. 
We think that this is the, the position that we all need to be in. And maybe we're all going to end up like that. And maybe some of us are saying like, thank God I'm not an apostle. Who wants that life? I just want to be one of those fringe disciples so that I can have all the stuff that I want. But what Paul is really getting at, he's saying that if these things are happening to you because of your faith in Jesus, well, join the crowd because anybody who walks with Christ will face these things. Because here's why. The founder of the church, Jesus himself, went through all these things. Jesus was exhibited as a spectacle to and for the world. He, he has been mocked and beaten. He wore a crown of thorns. He didn't have a home. He didn't have a family. He was betrayed by his friends. He often ate what he could find. He didn't have a wardrobe of clothes. Jesus was silent like a lamb before the shears when he was being put to death. So what Paul wrote in here, he's going, you want to know what it's like to be an imitator of Christ? These are the things you have to do because, because when Jesus did that, he became weak. And in that very weakness exhibited his greatest strength. He was subject to, to the ultimate disrepute that sinners might receive the ultimate honor. That's why he went through all of that. Without Jesus going through that, you will never be a son of God and you will never be a daughter of, of God. And so we get kind of like, oh, man. My life is terrible because look at all the bad things that are happening to me. People don't like me. They call me a Bible thumper or a Jesus freak and it hurts my, hurts my feelers. But Paul were here, you know what he'd tell you? Get over it. You need your feelers hurt. He, he goes on in verses... Um, 12b and 13 to say, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endured. When slandered, we entreated. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says that the treasures of kingdom are the trash of the world, which offers greater hope to anyone who does not measure up in performance. The trash of the world is made into the treasures of the kingdom of God because Jesus is the ultimate treasure. And then he became like scum of the world, the refuge of all things. That is the upside paradigm of God's grace. We think that it's who we are that matters. We believe that it's what we have or what we've made of ourselves that will provide a good evaluation. We think it's on our performance that we are accepted. But the reality of God's kingdom is that Jesus became nothing so that we could become something. He gave up his rights as God so that we could have the rights of the sons and daughters of God. In the evaluation of the world, the model of G that Jesus gave to us makes no sense. It's in complete contrast to the way of the world. And so, therefore, we become fools for Jesus. Many have a longing deep inside of them for something more, something of eternal value, which isn't based on our performance, but it's based on something of greater value and lasting strength. And that can only be found in the finished work of Jesus who laid down his life for us. And this is what that life is truly all about. It's called the gospel life. And it's about deferring, about 
elevating others, about pursuing someone else's interest. It's about being humble and not being arrogant. It's about giving and not receiving. It's about wealth distribution rather than um, wealth accumulation. It's about leveraging one's power and influence for those who are powerless. That's the gospel of Jesus. And the only... And and it's only inverted, upside-down, ironic paradigm of the kingdom of God that through the person of Jesus will help us to to know the nobleness of who Jesus was in his sufferings as we live through it. When you suffer, you become a a hero. You will join that list of the great heroes found in, in Hebrews. The paradigm of Christ's grace this new paradigm of grace, which is upside down, means that the way up is down. To be first, you must be last. To gain glory, one must know suffering. To be elevated, one must be humble. That's what it means to be a practitioner of the mysteries of God. Because to be a practitioner of the mysteries of God means that we're emulating Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. Be like Jesus. Amen? All right. I stole this quote from somebody. I don't know who it was because it's been like 30 years. But the biggest room in the world is the room for improvement. That's why we have these reflective questions this morning. Okay? So question number one. In a world that is performance-based, how have you elevated evaluated others according to their performance. Question number two. How has performance motivated you in a negative way? Question number three. What steps do you need to take to reduce the exhaustion in your life? Question number four. What one thing is God saying to you about making judgments of others? Question number five, what area in your life is God calling you to become a better practitioner of his word? Now, here's what I want you to do with those questions. Pick one or two that you're going to work on in the next week. Trust God for the outcome. Let the Holy Spirit work in you and through you to produce something that is God-driven, not man-driven. Just one or two. Don't think you have to do it all, okay? Just pick one or two and work on them and see what God does to transform your life. Our Father, we thank you that...